0: I'm going to start by telling a story um, based on my research in Tunisia, Novgorod, Russia, and the reason why I'm choosing this is because in some ways it summarizes the two lectures from this morning, but I also see it as a metaphor of how to be a Christian in the university setting. So here's the situation. in um the city that I study, I need you to envision a walled city high on a hill. and along two sides of those cities, Of that city there are two rivers and the rivers flow into one another so in effect the city overlooks a crucial trade junction and in this case it's the intersection of the volga and Oka rivers in russia along the one river at the base of the hill is a monastery and then on the other side of the city also at the base of the hill the river is another monastery now in the 17th century to get from one monastery to the other there was only one road, and it went through the wall of the city. Now, as I listen to, as I tell you the trajectory, you'll realize that this is a soteriological space. It's not just a material space, it's not just a city. So to get through this city from one side to the other, you started at Annunciation Monastery on the Oka River. Then moving in a direction from west to east, you went down Nativity Street, past Nativity Church. Sorry. Yep. Okay, so in the 17th century, you would start at Annunciation Monastery. You would walk along the river down Nativity Street, past Nativity Church, to the lower wall into this walled city. It was at at the base of the hill. And that was John the Baptist's gates, which is a symbol of the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. Now, in effect, when you're inside the city gates, you are symbolically within the realm of Christ's ministry on earth. The city is built into this hill, and so the highest point in the city is the Church of the Transfiguration. So you have a a bit of a Via Dolorosa of your own, you have to climb the the steep hill to get up to this church, which represents the key transformative point from the Orthodox point of view, which is when Christ's divinity shines through his humanity, which is a promise of redemption for the entire cosmos, in particular for humankind. Then you leave the other gate, and outside the gates, you find the chapel of the exaltation of the cross. From there, another road went down the hill to the monastery of the caves. That's 17th century Novgorod. It's a space in which the sacred time overlaps with everyday human time. That happens at the time of a religious schism in Russia, and just decades before Peter the Great comes on the scene. Peter immediately messes up the scheme. He puts another Annunciation church where the chapel, of the exaltation of the cross, should be. And over time, the city becomes complex. It's almost, in a way, a Weberian story, where you get roads that go around the Kremlin. So people no longer follow this space. Trade is banned from outside the monastery, So a lot of the movement from one side to the other was not just religious. It was for the purpose of trade. Then we come to the Soviet period. And in the Soviet period, which is the period that I study, I could never find a document indicating that they knew that there was a sacred space that was there. It's almost a defunct space. No one uses it. No one refers to it. And yet as they change individual points in that space, perhaps with an awareness of the overall, they insert a very different narrative into the city. So Annunciation Monastery became the site of the planetarium. So rather than the birth of Christ, you get the Big Bang. The Church of the Nativity became a muni- museum of municipal development. So the new salvation is through modernization. John the Baptist gate simply fell into decay, and when you came up the hill, rather than the Cathedral of Transfiguration, you found the House of Soviets. The new source of salvation and transformation, of course, is through the union of the working class, and working class rule. The Chapel of the Exaltation of the Cross was already long gone, but in that area, they had put a monument to Kuzma Minin, who was a national hero, a very secular hero, sort of saved Russia from the Poles in at the time of the Troubles, or times of Troubles. Then, when you went down to the Monastery of the Caves, you found a park for recreation. So rather than everlasting life, you have everlasting relaxation or physical well-being. If you were to go to Russia, Tunisia, and Novgorod today, you would find, of course, with the revival of orthodoxy, some elements in that earlier plan have been revived. But it doesn't have the coherence it had from before. So until last year, Annunciation Monastery had a planetarium within it. Nativity Church was revived, but when you get to the top of the hill, there is no um, Transfiguration Cathedral. They still have the House of Soviets, which both Orthodox believers and non believers believe should remain because it's considered an architectural treasure. When you go out, there is no Chapel of the Exaltation of the Cross, but as you go down the hills, you have the Monastery of the Caves again. So as Orthodoxy Revives and comes to occupy its place in the city. In some ways, it has to re articulate what that means. And in some ways, it has to work with the new space and a new city. Not only are there more roads going around the Kremlin, in fact, the city has jumped the rivers. So I gave you the city on one side of the river. Now it's on all sides of that river. The reason why I was thinking of this is because when I was reading your articles on Shalom, what struck me is one of the references that was in there on Shalom from Dr. Walter Storff's writing was Jeremiah 29, verse 7, which is to seek peace and prosperity, sort of the Shalom, of the city to which you have been exiled. And what struck me about that is, I bet you the Israelites who were there didn't think that that was Shalom. They were away from Shalom, which was their land of promise. (coughs) So they had been exiled and they were going out of the land. And in that context, they're told to seek the peace and prosperity of that city. And I was thinking about this in educating for Shalom or in being Christians in the university. We're all finding ourselves removed from that original space from our own church communities oftentimes, especially if we're in a secular institution, where that neat overlap between our Christian community and our academic community is sort of removed from us. And then within that, we find ourselves working within another environment and dialoguing with that and in my own experience as a christian in academics you know when i left redeemer college and went to toronto i thought i'd been given this worldview paradigm so i almost had the sense that i knew all the answers before i got there because i could just give my christian point of view and you know i would basically be correcting or supplementing secular scholarship and then i got there and I found myself in a new community of questions. They were asking different questions that my own community had never asked. And as I was engaging them in dialogue, I found I was learning. And my own views were being changed without becoming unfaithful. And then when I went back to my own community, I found I had new perspectives. So very much what I thought as the Christian worldview or the Christian perspective was always changing. And so I was thinking very much of the sense of shalom as being almost a dialogue. You're going out and then coming back in. You have a community of questions in secular academia, but you also are faithful to your home community, to your church community, and to your faith. In fact, that's the very standpoint from which some of those questions first came. And so for me, very much what being a Christian academic is like is going back and forth. I guess another metaphor for this to me would be borrowed from the thinker um, Jeremy Bigby, who in his Veritas lecture had this wonderful, um, he used music as a metaphor for this challenge. So you have your home theme when you begin, and then you have all these variations where you get dissonance and you keep waiting for the final resolution. And ultimately, you don't lose track of that first theme, but when you reach home, you've actually enriched what you think of as faith. And so that, I think, is sort of how I conceptualize what being a Christian in the secular university would be about.